0: What's going on? Welcome to Next Fix Podcast. My name is Roy. I'm going to be your host each and every week, except this week. I have a special guest with me today that is actually going to be the host and interview me. And today's episode is going to be my childhood, my addiction, and my recovery. Each week, we will have a special guest um, that either has lived or living experience or professional experience with that week's topic. Obviously, I am the person this week with the lived experience, and my special guest today is going to be Sonny, the icon of our community. Sonny is a person that I actually was having a conversation with no type of inkling that it would lead to a podcast. It was our first time to be able to sit down and just have a conversation. We had been friends on Facebook for a really long time. We keyed on Facebook. We carried, you know, those types of things. And then I started to share my story, and Sonny stops me mid-story and goes, Roy, you need a podcast. You should write a book. So I picked the podcast. The book wasn't quite, we're, we're not quite there <laughs> yet. But yeah, so um, I welcome Sonny. Sonny, I can't thank you enough for everything. I'm so happy that you're here and you agreed to do this. Um, Sonny, it's your show now.
1: I'm just so excited to be here. This is like- Super, super, super important to me, and I'm pretty sure a lot of people in the community hearing your story, it gave me a new perspective on people that battle um, I felt like I was one of those people that was extremely naive to things like this, um extremely judgmental, and you humanized it in a way that just opened my eyes to like what people actually go to and I think this podcast is going to help so many people save so many people. Um, I'm just excited for you. I'm excited for what this is going to do for you and um, the people in your life. This is definitely something big. that got me. I don't do, come out. I can curse. Mm-hmm. I don't come out for shit. So, <laughs> you know, I don't really get up for anything. So this is one of the things where like, I have to show up for Roy. So I'm excited to be here today. I'm excited to learn more about your story. Are you ready again, get into it?
0: Yeah, I do want to do a quick uh, trigger warning for uh, anyone that may be listening in or watching, as each episode will be audio and visual recorded and be uploaded to all podcast uh, streaming platforms, as well as our YouTube channel, which we'll get into at the very end. Trigger warning, um, we will be talking about um, essay-type stuff, um, domestic violence-type stuff, and then anything related to my usage during my active addiction phase. So I just wanted to put that out there as a trigger warning for anyone that may be listening. And just to be conscious and aware before you get too far into the episode. So I yeah, know I'm ready to go. So I
1: know we're gonna be talking about a lot today, but it all starts with our childhood. What would you say about your childhood that kind of like set the foundation you think with you growing up and um, choosing to go down the path of addiction? Was there anything in your childhood that like
0: stood out? How would you describe your childhood? So, you know, I grew up in a small town in central Illinois. I have three siblings. I'm the second oldest. As far as like a setup, so I am a firm believer that addiction can be hereditary. Mm-hmm. And on my mother's side of the family, my grandmother and her brother both were alcoholics. So when my grandma passed away, Rest her soul. She actually had 26 or 28 years in sobriety. When my uncle Dan passed away, he also had, and I'm not 100% for sure how many years he had, but he had multiple years of sobriety as well. And then my father was an alcoholic and not one that went to meetings and not one that would ever acknowledge. And I think still to this day, probably wouldn't tell you that he was an alcoholic, but I know he was an alcoholic. So I think that kind of set it up. And starting out, life was, you know, both my parents worked. We never wanted for anything. Granted, I was born in 84. So life, the economy was completely different from what it is today. So we didn't really want for anything. My brothers and uh, played Sports. I attempted at sports, and I wasn't really great at them. And so that was when the curve took. That's when life kind of took a turn for me. Um, But I say when the trauma started. uh, My dad was very abusive to my mother. Um, Beat my mother. I won't. It bothers me to say on a regular basis, but that's reality. That's that really is reality. And there's. Two vivid memories that play anytime I talk about this in my head as if it happened yesterday. One was we were really younger. I, it was me, my older brother, and my younger brother. And my dad and mom argued about something. I know we ended up getting all loaded up into my dad's truck. And we drove to this person's house, right? And my they leave us in the truck. Only my mom and my dad go in. If I remember correctly, it was something about a man that my mom had worked, that was working with at that time. And there was some type of, my dad thought she was cheating or that this man was doing something, whatever the case may be. They come back out, we drive home. I remember it being a quiet ride home. And mind you, my dad had a F-150 step-side pickup truck. It's an 84. Um. So we're all on that one seat. There isn't a back seat. It's just one seat. We're all on that seat. And we get home and no sooner we got through the door, my dad just takes off on my mom. And I can remember after the fight and the the argument was over, picking my mom's glasses up out of a plant. Old school plant right inside the door. And the Second memory that is ingrained in me is my dad had a problem, like, obviously with drinking, which means that you're in bars. My mom was not at this time. I I think my mom was so turned off by drinking. She would have a cocktail or, you know, like if we were at a barbecue or a cookout Mm -hmm. or something like that. But I can honestly tell you I was it wasn't until I was an adult in my twenties that I ever seen my mom get not even drunk. I don't even think I can tell you that my I've ever seen my mom in my 39 years of living ever be drunk. And I think that's just her childhood. Yeah. Then obviously 21 years with my father kind of makes drinking yeah. unattractive. Mm-hmm. And so he would go out and I'm not for sure what started this fight, but he comes home. My mom's on the couch. Um, and, They get to arguing. They get to tussling and fighting. And my dad drags my mother up the stairs by her hair to the second floor where their bedroom is. At this point, I was always the one that fought my dad. I would get between them. I was a protector. And that's why I am the way I am today. That is something. And I have to think about that because sometimes it's unhealthy for me. And I have to remember why I do those things. And it it all revolves around that because I always got between them. I would rather him beat on me than beat on her. And I remember vividly my older brother so he had been 16 17 years old worked at jewel and I had to call down to the jewel ask for him that he gets on the phone you need to come home right now. He's dragging her up the stairs. It's bad. I don't know what to do. I'm going to have to call the police. So he gets there he has my mom drug has by this point drug my mom up the stairs and into the bedroom. And took a minute. Um, So my brother gets there. We go upstairs um, and we bust open the door and he's on top of her ripping off her clothes. And at that point, it only led me to believe one thing was going to happen. I wasn't old enough to know what that thing was at that time. Now, looking back, I know what it was giving.
1: That's deep. And I can't only, I think people... Now that you're older, you can look back, those traumatic experiences really that's what starts to shape our trauma and how we deal with a lot of things moving forward. Um, that is crazy because I've also been through things like that, witnessing my mom being abusive relationships with people and um, the fear and everything it creates in you. After that happened, how did you move forward? How did you navigate? How did your relationship change between your mom? And you and your relationship with your
0: dad. So you know, I'll be honest. What so in that instance, nine one one was actually called, mm-hmm. and you know, my mom feared because my dad had fed into her for so many years that if she ever tried to leave, he would kill her and us. So I think what a lot of people experience in those situations because it's it's textbook domestic mm-hmm. violence. Yeah. So when people say, oh, well, why didn't you leave or, you know, it's because that fear has been beat into you. So if you ever were to ask me or if you do ask me, my mother has done no wrong by me. And I stand on that. You can say the outside looking in whatever you want. She did what she thought was going to keep her children and her alive Yes. at the end of the day and more so her children. Because I don't, I don't think she really attested to her life yeah. as much as she had three babies that she had to worry, keep safe. So we called 911 that night. And this is when the culture of lying started for me. Because my dad would put on this huge front and it was made, you know, he would make the police believe that I was a liar. I, I fabricated. I made up stories. I wasn't to be believed. And my mom wouldn't really have a word in edgewise because out of fear, she had two choices and it, she wasn't at that, that rock bottom to leave yet. Right. So it was like, no, I'm okay. I'm fine. You know, so they would just, the police would leave. So it taught, oh, so we can lie. And that's when the culture of lying began for me, which would later play into my life to mm-hmm. so where the point where I'm at now, where telling the truth is just so much easier. And it it is, um, but that was, that was the beginning of the trauma that would then play into addiction.
1: I'm just thinking about what you're saying and like, we're calling the police and nothing really happened. That's also the beginning of like burying stuff, coping in an unhealthy way, um, because it's like, you still have this broken puzzle that you have to still deal with and live with and figure it out. And back in that time, it just wasn't easy for women to leave their husband or leave those situations,
0: especially when they have kids. So, wow. And when my mom finally did leave a few years, I don't know if it was a few years, but when my mom did leave, at this point, she wasn't at the peak of her career where she is now. She's always worked in logistics and warehouses. And she was a woman, you know. Yeah. And who she was then was just another another employee who she is now. She walks into meetings, into rooms full of men, and they see her and they shut up. Cause she she's not going, you know? But we didn't she didn't have much. She left with nothing. She was actually driving my brother's, my older brother's first car, which was a 78 Supernova. And that's what she drove because she was leaving with nothing. And she took four kids and herself into a two bedroom literally like a cottage and the older kids shared a room and my sister slept with my mom because okay. she was still young enough to to do that yeah
1: well what age did this happen this event this began the, the big first traumatic experience you witnessed where you said lying became kind of a part of like you knew like okay i can lie and get away with stuff or people
0: lied to get away with stuff what age were you so I'd have to have been so if my brother was sixteen or seventeen. We're four years apart, so I was twelve or thirteen. You know, um, and you know, as a kid, I would I would lie about things, bef- you know, before that, you know, um, but where I began to, you know, like where it became a cultural thing was during these moments. And I honestly can only remember two times that I ever called the police. Otherwise, it was like kind of like what happens in this house. Stays in this house. My mom would wear makeup, um, wouldn't leave the house, call off work, because these altercations would happen sometimes in the morning, and he'd be sober, or they'd happen at night when he'd come home from the bar. It just was it, it varied. They happened at all times, but that's when the culture of lying, I think, for me began, and that's not putting off my my behavior, but it's insight to what creates that in children in traumatic did situations. Do you think what
1: was going on in a household, did it have an effect on your development? Was it taken away from the needs that you probably needed from your parents? Did you find yourself being so more doing adult things
0: and having a lot of agency to do whatever you wanted to do? I think that I was, at a young age, attracted to only hanging out with the adults. Okay. So I wanted to hang out with adults. I didn't really want to play with... The kids. I wanted to be where the adults were and hang out with the adults. Um, I'm not really for sure what that gave or what that why that was, but that was who I was. And you have to remember, simultaneously to the domestic abuse, to the craziness of our household, I was molested as a child. I won't necessarily go into who I can say it wasn't family. Okay. It was outside of the house. Um just because for my the way that I've made peace with it and the way that I've processed it and worked through it through therapy, I have no desire to push that issue upon anybody else because in my way is that I've had to deal with it and I also being a gay male don't want those that aren't gay to always associate abuse with someone being gay. I don't, that's for me, and this is a me thing. I'm not saying this is true for everyone, but for me, that's not, you know, I believe God made me the way that I am and I would still be gay today, regardless of any of that. So I was dealing with that as well. Uh, And you know, at the age that I was, um, and I would say that probably started, honestly, I don't even have a real good age range for you. Um, but that type, the, the the sexual abuse, um, triggered high sexual, sexual activity. Mm -hmm. Right. So now we get to the point where my, my mom leaves. And I think like in most divorces, kids that are, Preteen or just being, becoming teenagers, mm-hmm. play the which parent is going to let me do the most in mm-hmm. playing both sides for the middle. Yeah. I did that to a T. Now, let me tell you, because of the abuse and the over sexualization at that age, I ran. You ready for this? I ran my mom and dad's, because back then we had house phones, mm-hmm. right? I ran my mom and dad's house phone bill uh-huh. up to nine hundred dollars <laughs> calling those wow. nine hundred numbers uh-huh. that because I would go to the mall and I would steal Playgirl mm. out of the uh, Walden books. I believe it's Playgirl. It had, it. the boys and Playgirl had, had the boys. Playgirl yes. yes. had the boys. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> it was it was associated with Playboy, but Playboy got more because it was yeah. the girls, right. you know, in, in that era. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Playgirl was to, for well, the yeah. boy. And you would flip through and you'd they'd have those numbers <laughs> in the back. And this is, bu- this is even before inter- for, uh, the internet. Yeah. For, we had dial-up. And this is pre... That was still, like, in the works. It was out, but not every... It's kind of like cell phones. Not yeah. everybody had one at first. Not every- We didn't have internet. It wasn't until my mom married her second husband that we actually got internet, to be honest. But so, yeah, I did that. And then I also, this is when my legal trouble started. So my dad, uh, I would go between my mom and dad's house. And actually, they were only probably about, they were literally just across the main road mm-hmm. in our town. So it only took me probably five minutes to get from my mom to my dad's house. My dad obviously would go to, go to work, go to the bar. He'd never be home. So I could run free. So yeah. to answer your question, I got to run free. My mom wasn't going. Not at all. At that age? I, was, I wasn't even 16 at this mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. She's not going. You're not going to be in the streets. My mom was not for it. any of that. So I'd be at my dad's house. And then I started running with kids. This is when the gateway drugs begin. Okay. Um, The weed, the drinking. And at this point, I'm thinking drinking's cool. Because everything that we always did, whether it was baseball at, at the Legion, you know, summer league... My parents drank, all the parents drank, you know, whether it was barbecues during the summertime with my parents, their kids and them, they all, like everybody drank. So drinking was cool. And then my dad took us to the bars. So I grew up thinking that bars were cool. And still to this day, that's why even sober, I can go to you the bars I enjoy bar atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And I think it uh, yeah. has to do with that. So wait, I want to go back to the
1: nine hundred numbers. Mm-hmm. You were talking to guys on these things, and because mm-hmm. uh, this is reminded me of my teenage years, I was on a party line, and this is how I got like a lot of the gay culture just being on there talking to older gays. What was this phone boning on these nine hundred numbers? So yeah, so it, just, yeah. Like, you
0: just so, like it was, and you know, obviously, you know, this is also feeding into that lying culture of like, oh, I'm old enough to do you know like i'm old enough to be on this right you know um and would we didn't you know in our little town we didn't know anything about the party line i didn't know about the party line until i moved to chicago okay okay but yeah you would call these 800 numbers and then like they'd be on there and you'd like click and then but it was old school nine nine uh 900 number operators that are Mm. you know adults you know Pleasuring themselves and yeah, talking dirty yeah, yeah, and that yeah, type yeah. of stuff. Not necessarily just another person, everyday person.
1: Because I'm just thinking at that
0: age when you're doing stuff like that,
1: it's also sparking this bigger curiosity in your brain to like, you want to be around these people now. You want to find people like you. Mm-hmm. This urge to want to be around people like you. So to get into like that phase of your life and you said the introduction to gateway drugs. How did you find that first community of people that you started hanging with that
0: were like you? And what was that experience like? when it came yeah, I wasn't to That wasn't even till. That's further in the story. That's so not even at I was running with myself. With yourself? And you. adults. And hanging out with the adults and things like that. Um, and I didn't really. I had friends. Mm-hmm. The kids that were in our neighborhood. In our neighborhood, we did like a summer block party where all the, everybody that lived on our street, all the kids would, you know, they would block off the street and every house would like barbecue and cook. And I could, you know, there was like the Dolans and, you know, like all these people that lived, uh, I can't remember many of their names now. But anyways, there was just a bunch and those parents knew our parents, you know, mm-hmm. so it was like a block party. But outside of that, I wasn't into sports, but I would always be at the Legion during summer baseball leagues because my siblings played sports. And so I would run around with other kids, as you know, like that weren't playing like the kids from siblings of the other players. We do that, but I always want to be hanging out with my mom or the parents in the in the stands that were watching. You know, I wanted to be with the adults. It wasn't really until middle school that I really started to run in a and then I started to meet, you know, as you get into school, high school era, then you start to meet kids. But no kids that were necessarily like me. Actually, I think there was only one gay kid at my middle school um, and he was black. He and Fair Oaks was the name of the projects in our in our town. Um that's where he lived, you know. Um But he was he was. it was weird because he was like how the kids are now, you know, like don't mm-hmm. care, you know, they'll come mm-hmm. to school with lip gloss on, you know. He was one of those. Uh-huh. He was one of the girls, you know. <laughs> um, and he uh but that was really the only gay person in my in my So when
1: you say you started the gateway church, you was already drinking. Mhm.
0: So I would sneak so my dad drank in Miller Lite Oh, before middle school. So my dad kept my dad drank Miller Lite and peppermint schnapps, mm-hmm. okay? So at our house it was on Davidson Street. I think or Davidson Drive or something like that. In our kitchen, right? So we had a pantry, and above the pantry is where Mom, because my mom liked margaritas. Okay. So she would have that old Jose Cuervo pre-margarita mix. Sometimes it would have alcohol in it and sometimes it wouldn't. But dad always kept his peppermint schnapps up there and his beer in the refrigerator. So, you know, you would go, I'd go up there and be like, damn. So there'd be a couple times where he'd be like, <laughs> oh, there's some gone out of this. Or this isn't, you know, like I just bought this mm-hmm. and I would overhear it. But he would never remember because he'd get drunk you know? Yeah. And I don't know if maybe my mom fell into it and then just didn't say anything or didn't want it to be a fight, or maybe she just didn't pay it any mind. But um, I would, you know, pull that peppermint schnapps down and I would take a couple shots and then I'd put water on top of it and then like swish it around and put it back up there. After I heard him a couple times, noticing that there was some um, gone. Mm-hmm. But there were other kids in our neighborhood that you know we're out partying so everybody just kind of you know like we'd all just be home we knew our parents were at this bar or that bar or whatever and so we would just drink amongst ourselves But we never really got drunk it wasn't until um my mom had left my dad by this point my older brother was in high school I think I was getting ready to go into high school or I was either a freshman or I was in like the seventh eighth grade range He had a passport because he used to run track, and he got invited to this international track thing, right? So he had to get a passport. Mm -hmm. My mom's second husband was a big-time bowler, bowled on league, whatever. And Lincoln Lanes was the name of the bowling alley. So one night, I don't even know how I got there, to be honest. I really couldn't tell you how, because it was on the other side of town Mm -hmm. from where we lived. took my brother's passport, and I went down to the bowling alley. We all look alike. Mm-hmm. there is no denying of my siblings amongst any of us you put us all together we're all related i go down here and i get pissy drunk <laughs> and this is right as you're going to high school this is like grade or freshman what? year yes what? and i go down here now mind you, you gotta remember
1: it's the 90s it's the okay? 90s so things are different but i'm right under your age and i'm Trying to, I'm parallel on like your life to mine. So I'm like, wait, in seventh eighth grade, I was
0: not doing this. So you was, <laughs> I was,
1: who was out here, baby? <laughs> I was out here, and I had grew up
0: quick. So I go down there, I get shitty drunk,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and they end up. They think that I'm my brother, and at this point, that he's old enough to to drink or whatever. Yeah. So maybe it wasn't high school because he wouldn't have been old enough to drink. Maybe it was, I don't know. Anyways, he had a passport. I got a hold of it. I go down there with the passport, or maybe it was his ID. I don't remember. And somehow or other, I get down there, right? Mm -hmm. I get drunk. These people are serving me. I'm drinking. I had money. And um, they end up calling my stepdad because I'm so drunk down here. Mm -hmm. I have to get home.
1: Child, I was wasted. And I will say it was more lax back then because I remember my mom sending us to the store with a note to get her cigarettes. Mm -hmm. So, like, in
0: the 90s, they didn't give a fuck. And I even, I might, now that I think about it, I might've been older Mm because I'm trying to remember when my mom and her second husband were married, what the age range was, but I'm pretty sure I was still in high school Mm -hmm. because my very first, so how I ended up coming out was my very, I don't know if it was my first or my second suicide attempt. I had ate a bunch of pills and I do know my parents were separated because, um, my dad came, my mom wasn't able to leave work. My dad came and got me. The so called the call. first
1: suicide time happened at, in between his story you tell them, what, what should you do to get to that point? This
0: like, is actually before, yeah. You started? No, no, I was drinking and doing you know, crazy stuff, but I was home? always getting in trouble. Okay. I was lying at this point. I was sneaking out of the house. Um, I would get a report card. You're supposed to get signed, mm-hmm. you know, you or I would sign it, it instead of giving it to my mom. Um, you know, I was all, my mom, let me tell you something can't lie to that lady. You could you could meet her today and be in conversation with her. And she's going to get you. She's going <laughs> to catch you. But the, th- the gag is my mom never really. Like my mom's one of these people that can have a smile on her face. Mm-hmm. And be blood be boiling at this point. She's just one of those ladies. And I think some of that has to do with everything she went through. That it's kind of like, okay, I got to keep the exterior looking this way. But inside. Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. Um. So there was two suicide attempts. And I ended up, I don't want to call it a, a psych ward. It was more of a facility for mm-hmm. adolescents and teens. Um, and we did family therapy. Okay. And I literally just got in here. So, mind you, my mom's there, my siblings are there, and my dad's there. Right? And I will say the one thing. When it came down to situations like this, my mom and dad would be on the same accord. Okay. So, you kind of, like, pushed
1: this side stuff on me because you, I didn't know this. So, yo, your parents were separated. When you get your first attempt, what led you to that point? I know you was getting a lot of trouble, but like,
0: that's a... Because I, I knew I was different. You know, like I knew was I was it gay. your sexuality that was... Mm-hmm. So no one and knew th- at this point. Mm-mm. And none of the kids, like I said, there wasn't really many. I can still, to this day, I can't tell you that there was a bunch of kids that were, you know. I didn't have gay friends. And it wasn't until I moved to Chicago that I actually learned true gay culture having, you know, gay parents running around in circles and, you know, like cliques and those types of things, I, I really didn't until I moved here. And that's further on down into the story. That's yeah. more into the addiction portion. So to fast forward and for time's sake, I um, so yeah, I attempted suicide, ate a bunch of Tylenol PM. Oh my God. hmm A whole bottle. Back,
1: you go to the facility, you get out, you yeah. start, um, as you said earlier, using gateway drugs, more. So let's get into that phase of your life where
0: so drug use go back away. to the cottage that we lived in. I had a bunch of smashed up Prozac, and they were like white, right? And What's Prozac? Prozac is an anti—I um, think it's like anti-anxiety mm-hmm. and and or depressant, both combination, whatever. Um, and I had one of the kids that I met at school was like, oh yeah, and they like it's kind of like Xanax mm-hmm. in a way. Um, and he's like, oh yeah, if you crush these up, you snort them. Of course, at this point now I'm like, I want to get fucked up. I want to get high, you know? And so I would. Mm-hmm. And so I had this baggie and I was asleep on the bunk bed in the room that me and my brother shared. And either my brother, it was tucked in my waistband, right? The baggie was because mm-hmm. obviously I didn't have anywhere to hide it. So I was like, oh, I'll keep it on my person to know what I know. Now it says addict in the making right there. Mm-hmm. And so my mom finds it. She's like, she thinks it's cocaine. It's not, whatever. So she takes me to the doctor's office in our town and has like a 16 panel done, you know? And then now I had to go into, you know, treatment and like, I'm having to go back and forth 30 minutes from where I live to meet with a therapist and go to therapy. And, you know, they're realizing at this point that I'm ADHD. So they prescribe me Adderall. And this is when my love for speed and uppers starts when I mean, they just are like, oh my god
1: mm-hmm. so that happens your mom tells you to go get help this is amazing but they give you another drug mm-hmm. adderall and that triggers a different.
0: i was the first one in my family out of all of my siblings to get prescribed adderall because you know at this point they're trying to figure out why am i acting out why am i doing it and i, I was bad when I tell you I was bad, I was sneaking out. Mm-hmm. I was running with the kid I was running with the kids that were doing the bad shit because that's what I wanted to do because I I fit in and they they accepted me. And at this point I'm not I'm out to my family, but I'm not like out to community people. Of course, you know, we always think that nobody knows that we're gay. And the whole time, Maybe
1: <laughs> Maybe so
0: um, yeah, so we get to that stage. Now I'm drinking a lot. Now I'm smoking weed. Now I'm you know doing all these things. But now I have this Adderall, so I start kind of excelling in school, but not really because I just wasn't school wasn't for me. Right.
1: But You're in I high
0: school had, at this point, I had wrote a bunch of my dad's checks, right, and cashed them, and he banked at a credit union, right, and they knew mm-hmm. that I was his kid, so they would. Why would they question? me about a check that I have right and I I kind of wrote like my dad you know and um yeah so I actually end up getting in trouble at this point this is when my legal stuff really starts to happen and I'm, luckily I'm a juvenile at this point right mm-hmm. so all of this is going to family court at this point my mom and dad are both at their wits in with me my mom has never paid for an attorney for me My mom has never bonded me out of jail. So this is when the cycle of detention centers and group homes starts. And so that's when that cycle starts, right? And um, I get in trouble, I get sent away. And when I get sent away, I... um, So now I'm in these, you know, Juby joints, Mm -hmm. so to say, and now I'm really around. Yeah, the kids that are going to, you know, so then you're hearing about it. And there's our, I'm already locked up with kids that are doing heroin at this point, you know, kids that are selling cocaine because their family and their brothers do that. Right. And so, yeah, we get there and um, and that's the cycle of that. Right. And I am going to group homes and all this because at this point, my mom's moved out of state so now it's like I can't really go live with my mom. We tried that one time, it didn't work. Because I still was I was still rebelling. I was still doing shit that I wanted to do. I was gonna follow her rules. And her husband at that time, he wasn't going either. So then we get to where um so that's probably from fourteen to eighteen.
1: Some kind of way you downstate Illinois, you end up in Chicago.
0: Mm-hmm. I come to Chicago, um, after my 21st birthday, I get in trouble again um, for checks, mm-hmm. again, and um, they released me to a halfway house, 6734 South Morgan. Now, who thought that my right <laughs> ass needed Without to be on 67 <laughs> and Morgan?
1: Ain't that Englewood? Englewood,
0: mm-hmm. And that was Inga Inglewood at so. that time. So we get there. Uh, I get some free time, some, some time. So I get on. you know, i go down to the red line, 69th uh, street, red line. And there's this lady, you know, she knew I was a sissy, right? She knew mm-hmm. I was one of the girls. And so I turned to her, I said, Hey, where's the gay part of Chicago? Mm-hmm. She walks me over to the little board and points on the little rail map or whatever. She's like, you got to get off right here. Got off on that Belmont. Just didn't turn back. So you, on. you in
1: Chicago, you on
0: Belmont, you're meeting people
1: like you, mm-hmm. and what is that experience like? What happens then? What, what are the things that you're getting into? How is your social life shaping up at that point?
0: So at this point, like I'm supposed to be going back to this halfway house. Mm-hmm. I've lied to them and told them that I've gotten a job up north, and the reason that I have to work nighttime is because my night it's night job. Whole time I'm not. Well then they catch on. So now I get put out. Mm. So I get put out of this place. So now I'm on my own. So this is when I first met the BYC, the Broadway Youth Center. Mm-hmm. Used to be on at 3179 um, Broadway, right there on Belmont and Broadway. And that's when I meet all the street kids, right? So at this point, you know, we're out there. Um, I don't know. Do you ever remember like Puerto Rifa and Gigi and Puerto um, Rifa sound familiar? Um, these are the kids that I'm running with at this uh, point, and they don't have have—they're, you know, street-based, unhoused young people, too. Mm-hmm. And we're just terrorizing, right? And so we do it, and we're running the streets. At this point, I've absconded from probation, so now they're looking for me. But at this point, good luck finding me. Right. And, you know, you can be on the run in the city of Chicago for a long time before they catch up to you. Um, and... So the people that I was running with did sex work. So I was like, oh, well, I, this is back in the, where you post on Craigslist, you know, in there. And I was young at that time, 21, 2021. And I go to a client. No, I didn't go to a client. But I had seen clients. I had a bunch of money. I went to a nightclub. What is a 4 a.m. nightclub. I meet this mixed boy. And he's like, oh, well, we're going to the afters at my house. We get there. Now, mind you, we've been doing cocaine in the club. I'm drinking at this point. I got money because I done churned all these tricks, whatever. And my thing was every night I would add money or I didn't have money. I would either go to the clubs or stand outside the clubs, wait for a drunk person, find somebody that I was attracted to. Now I ha- not only am I going to be able to have sex, but I'm going to have somewhere to sleep, you know? And I usually could work a shower in there too, yeah. sometimes. And this boy takes me back to the afters. A bunch of us leave from this club, and we go back to his house. And then, as soon as we get there, there's a plate on the table. It's got three. Wait, lines. So
1: before this moment, you are using
0: cocaine. Cocaine, drinking crazily, smoking weed, doing all that. Okay. So now this is you're, with this, this date house. Mm-hmm. No, it's not even a date. It's just somebody I met at the club the that said they was having an afters. And mind you, they've been feeding me cocaine all night. We get to this. House, there's a plate in his bedroom dresser and it has three lines already cut out on it, right? Mm -hmm. So I go, okay. I was like, can I do one of those lines? He's like, yeah, you can. Go ahead, go ahead. So I pull the plate up, I do the line and it burns. I'm talking about burns, Sonny. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, he's like, oh, he's like, oh shit, oh shit. He's like, oh, that was Tina. He's like, I'm sorry, I thought that was our cocaine from before. He goes, now that was that teen or whatever. Now it's starting to settle. It might, you get this little it's pattern. It's a different experience. A, you oof. feel a different of way. The heat comes over you. The heart starts to patter in and whatnot. Baby, sunny. Let me tell you. It was love at first sight. Mm-hmm. Love at first taste, rather. Mm-hmm. And we, I'm on a downward spiral. And so now I'm with this person all the time. We start smoking it. It starts now. I'm really trying to turn dates. You know what I'm saying? Now I'm looking for dates that do meth, that do Tina, mm-hmm. because now I can kill two birds with one stone, right? I can get high, come over, do whatever I need, and you're still going to pay me. But sometimes, and more than not, you're only paying me in drugs. So by this point, I end up getting caught. I went to the airport, um, and because you could take the blue line out there late at night, and you know they used to let you sleep mm-hmm. in. The airport, you know, I was with a couple of the street kids. So obviously this airport police see us and they know we're not, you know, they could take one look at us and know we're not ticketed passengers waiting for our flight. Mm -hmm. Come up and ask everybody for their ID. Maybe they had us surrounded. So mind you, I'm on the run from, you know, the stuff before. So I end up getting locked up and I end up having to go down. But that kills everything at this point. So, like, I mean, that kills, like, all my, any charges, anything. Like, I come out completely free. Free, mm-hmm. um, And, yeah, that's where we're at. And um,
1: so, um, this a lot. But, you know, just, and you're putting a lot on me. And I kind of want to go back to your childhood because I'm trying to just understand the Roy as the human, as the kid. And I feel like you're talking about, like, you witnessing domestic violence on your parents and then them separating, you navigated back and forth to their house, it reminds me of my childhood, me doing the same. But I feel like you became a lone wolf at that point. Mm-hmm. I feel like you started moving and you had all these things happening to you with your sexuality, being curious about a lot of things, and just exploring the world. Because I remember me discovering the party line. That was my escapism. Like, I heard people that sound like me, and I would just be on there all night. And I'm just trying to see, like, everything you dropped on me. That person that you became, and you're like Mm -hmm. 21, 22. It started as a child. It was something that was happening to you. It was something you had a certain level of independence and exploring, and just wanting to be around grown people or just be in things you had no business being in. It kind of gave you that extra push to be able to just do a random line of something and just trust that it's something that you will want to do. So, you
0: know, I, you know, as I said, I was, I was doing the most as a kid, Mm -hmm. but you got to think in my mind, I was always running with adults. So some of the people and the adults that I were around were people that did and not by my, not, and this is the thing. This is the, the people where I learned some of these things weren't even people that my, my parents hung out with. These are just people that I had from the neighborhood. Yeah. Um, and there were, you know, people that um did drugs and drink. And, like, I only wanted to be around the adults that were drinking and partying and that were at the bars and things like that. And at the American Legion, where my dad hung out a lot. We were allowed to go in because our, my dad was in there. We were under 21. So we could go in. And that's how I learned to play pool. I learned all these things about being in a bar. And So do you think just
1: that culture and just being around, seeing people drink a lot, it had an impression on you? It did. And it, you it, said it, at some point, your mom, they wanted to get you help. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like at that moment, looking back now, you feel like they did enough to try to help you? Do you think, was there anything they could have done differently to prevent your trajectory into, like, where things
0: started to go for you? To be honest, no. Because you want to know why? I was going to do what the fuck I wanted to do. wanted to do it. And that's that's how they became fed up.
1: Where do you think that energy came from? What made, what, how did you become that person to be like, I'm going to do whatever the fuck I
0: want to do? Because you got to remember, here I am. I have all these feelings that I never really processed. I always told the therapist and the, and the psychiatrist what they wanted to hear. Just you to get know, off the situation. Just, just to do what you need to do. Yep. Keep feeding me so that you were animal. being
1: performative. You were
0: shielding. And I'm a liar at this point. Yeah. You know, I'm grandiose. I hate that word because it was used at such a young age. And this therapist, you know, was like, you're so grandiose and you, I could fabricate and I could make up these stories and I could do all this, you know, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. to get me what I wanted. And the thing is, is that at that point it was screw school, screw what I was doing. I just want to do what I, what I want to do. And I don't want to do any of that. I want to be their age, right. you know, here I am 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 years old, but I want to be doing what the. 18, 19, 20, 21, 22-year-olds and above are doing, and that's going to the bars, that's partying, that's, you know, I thought when I would see people that I knew older than me wake up hungover or Mm completely, I thought that was cool. So that kind of molded. And at that point, some of these people had been arrested and gone to jail. Mm -hmm. And, like, it was okay. So, like, when I got caught, you know, when I got caught doing stuff, I can remember, it now mind you, I smoked from the age of 13 up until last May. Oh. Cigarettes. Mm-hmm. And um, I got caught uh, stealing cigarettes at a Kmart. And I was sneaking off to older people's house, and they were doing shrooms and pills and all this stuff. And like, I was just like a little brother to them, and they mm-hmm. they didn't care because they were doing it. So they're like, oh, well, here, yeah, do it. And they didn't have any type of responsibility for me. It wasn't, they didn't have any res- any loyalty or responsibility. And you weren't afraid of
1: the consequences, because it seemed like you did get caught a lot, and you mm-hmm. gag your parents' hell.
0: Oh, my mom always knew when I was smoking. She could smell it. She used to smoke. And once you quit smoking, the smell of smoke is so potent. And people Sm- that don't smoke can really smell mm-hmm. it more than smokers do. And I would sneak out after she would go to bed. I would climb out. I can remember one time when she was married to uh, her second husband. Um, our back door, right? would go, you'd come in our back door and you could do two things. You could either go up and into the kitchen or you could go down and into the basement. So I would leave the door unlocked. Somehow he figured out that I had snuck out, right? So I'd get back, I'd sneak out the window. I'd go unlock the door, but I wouldn't open the door. I would sneak out the window and then drop down and then just leave out the yard. And when I would come back, I would go through the back door because it's unlocked because there was no way to jump back into the, to the window or whatever. And he had put a chair Behind the door, because he knew I had snuck out. Wow, where so, were you speaking out? Anywhere that I wanted, anywhere I wanted, <laughs> running with people I had no business running with. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? People that were getting high, people that were going to be doing things. At that age, I wasn't really committing crime. You know what I'm saying? I was just out. I wanted to party. I wanted to be with the older kids that were having house parties and drinking and mm-hmm. getting high and doing those things. And when I say getting high, I mean like smoking weed yeah, and yeah. and doing those things not like the high that i would later be into right. right and so you know my parents were i don't think there was anything else that you know and at this point my dad is like really out of the picture by this point i see him here and there mm-hmm. we might see him at christmas time for presents and he might get us once in a while but mainly it was on my mom and my stepdad at this point and that would be i don't my mom and her second husband at this point and it would be um you know, and my step, my mom's second husband, he didn't play all that, you know, he was younger than my mom, Um, and, but I also, there were, he also drank, they drank, you know, my mom drank more in her second marriage than she did, obviously, when she's married to dad, Mm -hmm. Um, and so it wasn't, you know, it was just one of those things, like, and then we'd have people over, we'd have parties, or they'd go out, and then I'd just take a fan any, anywhere I saw a, a vantage point for me to do what I wanted to do, maybe I'd do it. I think this is so important because it's like, it's painting this picture
1: and it's painting out this trajectory of just like how you were just going with the motions, doing things that you wanted to do. Um, So let's go back to like the addiction part. Let's go back to the moment you found your new crowd in Chicago, Uh hang with them, run around, build my up north with them. Know what that's Old like. school Belmont, yeah, our Belmont. Like. Oh, that was you out there to the sun come up.
0: The Belmont now is not it's what not it what was. To that's back when Dunkin' Donuts was still was a thing Don- on Belmont and mm-hmm. Clark. Oh, you remember the Rocks? Uh huh. Belmont remember Rocks. rocks? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So you found your new crowd. You running around. You using cocaine, weed, drinking a lot. A partying lifestyle. So we back at this situation where now, first for the first time, you exposed to Tina. Mm-hmm. And you saying how that made you feel. People have told me it's a hell of a high, Mm -hmm. especially the first time. It's like crazy. Not to
0: glamorize it, but. For sure. And it's a, I will tell you, and for those that don't know what Tina is, in the gay community, crystal meth is called Tina. It's the nickname for it. Just like Coke's called Blow in the gay community, Mm -hmm. we call crystal meth Tina. So, yeah, I had did that. And then, like, I start hanging out with this boy. and we're like getting high all the time. But now I'm out in the streets. Cause now I've had a taste of it. Now I want to get high all the time. Mm-hmm. So I've had a taste of it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna do what I wanna do and I'm gonna do whatever it takes to continue to get high. Now I've always been into black men, mm-hmm. Puerto Ricans, as you know, I am Latino and white. Mm-hmm. You know, my mom's white, my dad's Latino. Um, and I grew up in a town where it was mostly the people that I was around were white, except when I went to school, you know. Um, so then I get here in the big city of Chicago, and baby, there's black I'm people. There, there's all flavors. Exactly. But the only people that were going to pay you, and at this point I'm 21, you know, the only people that are going to pay you for sex. Are the older white men i don't think i ever had a black client
1: mm-hmm. you know and, and what years is these because just because you know tina is still a thing in our community today mm-hmm. so what what What's what time frame are we talking so this about?
0: is like 2000 and when i first started actually using tina would be um like 2006 or 2006. seven okay um no that's not true it was further back because I get caught and then I come back, when I come back, it's about 2000, you know. Um, and so, yeah, around that, yeah. Because mm-hmm. I turned 21 in 2005.
1: The early 2000s. Yeah, so early if 2000s.
0: context, this has been in our community. Way before this, yeah. but I'll tell you, the culture back then was very tight-knit, was mm-hmm. very closed. So like, there's this website called BBRT and that was really the only website where you could publicly advertise that you partied and played, which meant did Tina. And you could ask people, you know, like, do you have, you know, like, do you have the party favors is what you would say. And, you know, they'd be like, yeah. So you would negotiate that. And that was for clients and non-clients. That was either the hookup culture of it as well. Oh, excuse me. The hookup culture of it as well. So at this point, I'm only smoking, right? So you they, did the
1: line of Tina, of meth. You have your reaction to it. You want more. Mm-hmm. This
0: is now. This is your drug of choice now. Yeah, I'm trying to get to this boy's house because he was turns out to be one of the big dealers for Halstead Street, mm-hmm. and so yeah, and kind of, and we kind of had a thing. I won't say it was really a relationship. It was more like okay, well, we would do what we did, and sometimes we would find other people and still come back to the same location with those people, right? Mm-hmm. And then, um, so that was a that was how that went and then so now i'm you know turning tricks we're out here and i smoked it for probably four or five years right mm-hmm. then i get caught right at the airport i go in i do the rest of my you know probation parole time whatever mm-hmm. and no, there's nothing more after this right you yeah i'm out and um i come back to chicago Know where to go but at this point they're not worried about where I'm going they don't care if I have a place to go because my time's done my my case is closed I'm good you know no halfway house no nothing mm-hmm. so I already know Chicago at this point so I know I can go to the BYC I could get bus cards I know how to I know how to maneuver on the streets whatever mm-hmm. and no sooner I'm back you know we're okay you know what's the gig what's the right deal you know and we're right back to regular programming and then it gets to this is when the addiction starts to happen, right? So when you get out of jail, did you find the same crowd that you was running with? Yep. Same people are running on the streets. Same people are doing the same things. Same caseworkers are working at the Broadway Youth Center. Mm-hmm. Same everything, right? Okay. 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 And I meet a person whose name's TJ. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I say that now because it's going to play a part later on uh-huh. in in the episode and in the story. And I start running with TJ. TJ is not a person that does. Drugs, I think, you know, they drinks, but nothing like that, you know, yeah. um, but he knows that I'm getting high, you know, clearly at this point, you know, everybody knew, although I was homeless. And now, mind you, at this point, I'm on the red line, so I have nowhere really to go. And there are times where you're not going to find that person that's willing to take you home. Yeah. Then, even though I was homeless, my main resource that I used at the Broadway Youth Center was their shower. Because as long as I could go there every afternoon, take a shower, get a fresh pair of socks and a fresh pair of underwear, and maybe swap out some clothes because they had like a clothing closet or whatever, I was good. And I'd be able – there was a lot of people that heard the lead up to this podcast Mm -hmm. and started to hear my story that have known me since back then that said I never knew. knew. They never knew. And so I'm out on the street, you know, at this point. So I'm eating out of trash cans at this point. Because now all my money, my when I, and before when I would turn tricks, you know I would eat, I would you know get a hotel room that type of thing, you know mm-hmm. take showers, keep my appearance up. At this point, now I'm just getting high, to be getting high. You know, what was the shift like
1: you were doing it for so
0: long, and well, then it started to get, it
1: started I guess to like more so take over, take priority over like you trying to
0: keep yourself together. Or so that's a good point. I get back out of jail when you get, get jail, out of jail. God. I meet this guy off of Adam for Adam and he lives over kind of by where the new uh, Howard uh, Brown site is actually not far from where we're at now. Mm-hmm. And he comes, I come in, it wasn't a client. It was more of a hookup, but he had drugs. So that's the only reason white man. Um, he had drugs and I, there was no, Although I led him to believe there was an attraction and we were going to do things, I wanted to get high because I hadn't. I was fresh back, right? Mm-hmm. He didn't have no pipe, only because he slammed it, which is injecting it, which is you know, IV, you know, in, uh, IV use, drug use. So we got you snorted
1: the first time. Mm-hmm. Then you started to smoke it. Mm-hmm. What's the different like levels of high from snorting? smoking, smoking?
0: and snorting to me? are about the same, smoking, it still lasts. you got to mm-hmm. understand, you know, you do a bump of coke, it lasts a matter of, you know, 10, 15 minutes, right? mm mm-hmm. You do a bump of meth, uh-huh. or you take a good pull off of a pipe, you're high for hours. For hours.
1: Yeah. Snoring, smoking. It's about the same kind of high, you so know what I'm saying? saying? Yeah, you meet this guy, Adam, Adam, and now he's introducing a new
0: way mm-hmm. of doing it. Which and I was, I, yes, I was scared of needles. So I'm like, I don't know. Like, I've never done this. He's like, you know, of course, he wants to use me for sexual purposes. So he also knows what this eye is about, where it's about to take me. So, of course, he's like, you're going to be okay. Like, don't worry. I got this. I do it and doing it, you know, like I'm a professional, so to say, at this. Mm-hmm. So the addict in me. Okay, that I don't know is actually like a full-blown addict at this point. Says, "Yeah, sure," and I lay it out there on this this table. And so he tells me, he's like, "You're gonna want to put those sunglasses on because sometimes, you know, like when you inject, you know, Tina, it makes your eyes sensitive to light." So I'm here, I am looking like, you know, Stevie Wonder here. I got sunglasses on, and I got my arm out here. He's got a belt around my arm, a literal belt around my arm, got me tied off. Doing you know, alcohol like you see the nurses do, all that. And he goes, Okay, now I'm going to inject, and then you're going to be a big wave of like heat over you. He's like, It's okay if you need to put your head between your legs, and I'll never forget it. He injected it, and it hits my system, and it's like a train whistle is rolling through my head. And it took me into an instant love that I would not know. Would ruin my life. Mm-hmm. Once did you do that? That one time, that first time, mm-hmm. you'll never go back to smoking. And so before that moment, you were managing your
1: usage of semen. It wasn't like
0: yeah, you was
1: chasing it, but you was able to maintain your life for sure. You were like still, you cared about your appearance. You mm-hmm. knew you had to go take a shower, but once you did that, that was the beginning of. You realizing that you were addicted mm-hmm. to this drug, and it was probably like going to ruin. Like
0: yeah, your life. then you know, um, and that all plays into because Adderall is amphetamine salts. Mm-hmm. That's the compound of Adderall, right? The name, the full name of meth methamphetamines. Mm-hmm. So it's an amphetamine. Adderall is synthetic meth. Mm-hmm. Okay. That first initial after the snort, it was that same burn and that same warm feeling you get when the Adderall starts to kick in. So I had already had a love for it, you know, and I had already been abusing it, you know, through all those. And so, you know, I would I would go through stints, you know, like I would do it for a while and it it, and everything. But once I started to inject it right, um, I am up here. I don't have anything right I'll have any housing program like all this thing you know like I'm you know at that time it was really you either had to be HIV positive or trans mm-hmm. to get into the housing programs that they had then or a DC award of DCFS cuz they would get you an apartment. I was none of those things. So I meet this um boy on X2, cuz I liked some of his videos I jumped in his inbox mm-hmm. We get in a relationship via the internet. But at this point, I'm... Wait, and, so the young
1: people, that's why you don't listen. X2 was like... The you know, Twitter? My Vista. Yeah. And, well, my Vista is now uh, X2. Yeah, that's what X2 was back in the day. It's gone.
0: It's gone, it's gone, gone yeah. yeah. <laughs> X2, and then I go, I meet the boy. I move to Thomasville, Georgia, mm-hmm. right? This boy lives with his sister in the projects there. We decided we were going to start dating, blah, 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 What? So I get down there. There really is no meth. And I'm like, okay, I can work this. So I start, I get a job. I find a doctor that's willing to mm-hmm. prescribe me Adderall. But here's the deal. Now that Adderall no longer has the effect that it did before I ever knew about meth. Yeah. Now I'm eating Adderall. So I was prescribed one 30 milligram pill a day. I was eating like four of those a day. So now I'm running through my script. So then I find a backwoods doctor who's willing to write me a script for 90 30 milligram Adderall's in a month. Mm-hmm. You know, so that means that now I can take three More. a day.
1: Yeah. You're trying to like get that high. You want that effect I'm trying, trying to back. chase get the meth
0: high. So, use Adderall to do that. so I do that. And um, now I'm doing everything. Me and the boy end up getting into it because I stole a mutual friend's credit card. Because I was trying to get high. Mm-hmm. I found the one person in Thomasville that had to connect to meth. I'm right back to the races. So I'm eating roll and I'm doing meth at the same time.
1: The boy that you were dating, was he used? Did he do mm-hmm. drugs? He didn't do nothing?
0: No. Nope. But so he doesn't know he that I have a problem at this point. I pitched him a whole story that I you know, was in Chicago and I, you know, was so honestly. So
1: with him and you kind of wanted to clean yourself up for him. Yeah, well, I, I wanted to date to. him.
0: Yeah, you know what, what I'm saying? And he had one of those things that we both like, you know. He had oh, him,
2: yeah, no,
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. And
1: so and so, so I'm sorry, you you take the credit card, and find a connect out
0: there that has meth,
1: mm-hmm. and so the China's back on. Yep.
0: Yeah, I'm back on. I'm back on bullshit. Right? You and him break up. I out? catch a case down there. You catch a case down there. I catch a case down there. And so then they release, or I get out right, mm-hmm. and I. Come back up here. And um, I shoot back up here after I get out of jail because I know this. I don't really know anything there. And they're like, okay, I get back up here. Well, then I get on the phone with my mom, right? Mom, I'm sorry again. She has somebody that she works with that lives in Chicago that's also gay, that's willing to let me stay with them while we figure out. I don't even know what we were figuring out. I can't Mm -hmm. even remember. Mm -hmm. Why go in this man's house and steal his credit card? This is a person that my mom works with. Oh wow! This is my mom's coworker and very good friend. And you still have a credit card. He catches on because I leave and then he must have went for his wallet, realized the credit card's gone. So now my mom's got to pay this man back all this money, right? Oh, What's God. that do to their relationship, right? Yeah. So now my mom's really done with me. So now I'm back on the streets here in Chicago, nowhere to live, nothing like that. I meet this man on, I don't even know where we met at. Maybe Craigslist or something. Mm-hmm. And I, he was like looking for a roommate. He lives in Stone Mountain, Georgia, which you know is right outside Atlanta. Yeah. White man. Girl, you know, I ain't got nothing to do with no white man. <laughs> okay. Hey, so I go down to Stone Mountain. He, now, I go there and he knows I'm coming there and I'm going to live with him. He calls it as like a houseboy, whatever, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So I get down there. This man is, I mean, there isn't even no fake in the funk with this. And mind you, he don't get hot. He only drinks. Yeah. So then I'm like, fuck it. So I had a friend from when I was in Thomasville, Georgia. She had moved up to Atlanta. So I call her. I tell her I'm in this fucked up situation. I lie, of course. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, well, this is da. I got to get out of here. She's like, oh, come live with me. So I go live with her. I get a job at. Chili's in Alpharetta, Georgia, which is right outside of Atlanta. It's a suburb of Atlanta. And I start getting high again. Just people that I work with do Adderall. I start drinking again. Mm-hmm. The drinking and the Adderall lead back to meth. meth.
1: So you had periods of stopping, mm-hmm. trying to get clean. It always
0: started with the drink. Oh, I only drink, you know, mm-hmm. and I even tried the, I'll only wine. I won't drink, you know, because my drink was Jim Beam. I love Jim Beam. And there's a Hank Williams Jr. song that says, you know, Jim Beam uh, and women tried to both kill me back in 1979. Okay. Jim Beam tried to kill me multiple times. Mm-hmm. And they wow. uh, they tried to um, kill me. And so I would always start drinking every time I would stop. You know, and it would always give my family hope, right? And it always gave my mom and my sister hope. By this point, my brothers really don't want anything to do with me. You know, mm-hmm. and we were never really, really close. By this point, everybody has grown up. My siblings, Have grown up with me being gone in and out of institutions, group homes, programs, all this stuff, Mm -hmm. you know. So now that's compounding my already childhood traumas Mm -hmm. of being a, a lone wolf, being angry, the resentment. So when I would go to family functions in my sober stints or Christmases or Thanksgivings, you know, they were always nice. They were always cordial. But I knew, you know. Yeah. And there was resentment. And now, mind you, at this point, there's never been a tough conversation about any of the damage that I've caused. Yeah, uh-huh. Because by this point, I'm an adult, right? None of the damage that I caused to them or the embarrassment in our small town of the shit that I did mm-hmm. that they had to deal with once they'd take me away. Right? Yeah. So, rightfully so, they resent me. They're not, they don't, you know, they're not feeling me. Yeah. Yeah. And so I moved down to Georgia. And I get sick. Well, no, I start getting high. Whatever. I move out of that man's house. I move in with my friends. Mm-hmm. Their neighbor that they're friends with is really big into the pain pills. So they have they have to connect for the meth. So I end up fucking her on her on rent, quitting my or getting fired from my job at Chili's, mm-hmm. fucking her on rent, and say, fuck it. They tell me I can move in. Well, then I move in with them. They get me the connect on meth. So now I'm doing meth again. Well, they leave out one day. I have trade over, right? Mm -hmm. and I'm showing off her pistol to the trade, right? Mm -hmm. Trade leaves. They come back. We go. We go to party, whatever. Trade doubles back. We didn't put the safety bar on the sliding back door. Trade breaks in, steals the pistol and the TV out of the house. So now I'm playing dumb like, no, I never had nobody over there. You know, I don't, this is just random. Mm -hmm. So then eventually, now I'm working at Waffle House. So we get past that. They don't necessarily, they me out or whatever. I get past that. I have a, my mom's, stepdad now and who is my stepdad who i mm-hmm. consider my stepdad they're married he has a daughter that lives in a land right and my mom was like you know you should go work for her and yes i'm steering away from everybody's name because i don't want to identify anybody right. that but yes was i have a stepsister and um but i didn't end up going to work for her thank god because that probably would have caused my mom and mm-hmm. her husband and my stepdad to get divorced mm-hmm. for the shit that i was on at this point yeah So I'm doing meth and I'm just jumping from hotel to hotel. Um, I mean, I'm mixing Molly with meth. So I'm taking Molly and shooting meth at the same time. Not recommended for those out there that's still in active use. Don't Mm -hmm. do it. It's not good. Mm -hmm. It'll kill you. And all of a sudden I get taken to the hospital. No, that's okay. Before that, my mom comes in business, right? We go to Ruth, Chris, my mom, my stepdad, my stepsister, her husband at the time, and me. We go to Ruth Chris to eat. I'm starting to get sick, right? So I go in the bathroom and I throw up. Mm -hmm. Now, by this point, I know that there's something wrong with me, right? And um, so I go to the hospital. And um, my parents leave or whatever. They leave town uh, because they were just there. Mom was there for work and visiting Mm -hmm. my stepsister. And I leave. And I um, end up having to go to the hospital. Get in the hospital. They can't get my heart rate to go down.
2: Mm-hmm. for nothing
0: i mean my heart rate's like 200 and something oh my God. so i spend time in the hospital i'm I'm admitted i spend like a week there and it got down to the point where it was like the doctors are like we're not really for sure that you're gonna make it out of this right so they talked to my mom talked to me and basically it was like hey you need to spend time with your family and you need to spend time with him because he might we not don't make it. he might not make it mm-hmm. So, my mom and stepdad moved me to Ohio where they live. My stepdad owns a bar at this time, bar and restaurant, and has apartments above it, and he rents them out. So, they set up for me to live. Because at this point, my mom's not going to let me live with her. Yeah. I can tell you that. We've already, mm-hmm. that, that bridge is burned years ago. And I move into this apartment, right? I get into the doctor's there. I get into a program. I get on medication. I do all these things. I'm on the mend, right? So, now I'm able to work. We're, you know, we kind of have worked out of that. Bad area, right? Mm-hmm. Start working for my stepdad. Then I start working for a bar down the street. Now, mind you, I would have a glass or two of wine. But I was like, at that point, I was scared. Because I really thought I was going to die. And I called my dad. And I told my dad, hey, listen, there's something going on. My dad said, that's karma. That's what you get," And hung up the phone. Oh wow. And that was it. I wouldn't talk to my dad again for many, many years. Mm-hmm. My mom's like, you know, what was she going to say? You know, like, because at this point, we're thinking that I could... Potentially die. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And but I'm back up, back on medication. I'm back, you know, doing well, on, and all that. So I, like I said, I've started working for my stepdad, and I start working for his car rental business, and then I get this job down the street running a bar, and it's a rough bar, it is. And at the same time, I'm working all this. You know, I'm doing all this. Now I need Adderall, so I find an Adderall connect. In the restaurant and bar business, it's not hard to find an Adderall Connect at all. And we, you know, so now I'm back to taking Adderall. Now my, when I was drinking just a couple glasses of wine has turned into drinks. Mm-hmm. Has mm-hmm. turned into all this stuff. And so fast forward. So we already know the, the, how that's out, right? I get back to using, right? right. You want to say, though, shout out to
1: family. Because you put them through a lot. Especially mm-hmm. your mom. And the fact that they my mom, my sister. tried to redeem you so many times, mm-hmm. that that's touching something where you're at now. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that, that, that's really a lot. That your mom still, even with her new man, he probably was like, I'm tired of this motherfucking problem, child. We got to help him. I feel like they tried to help you a lot throughout your process around that time. That's what I'm getting from. It. They
2: did.
0: Um, reluctantly, but they were doing it. So that's amazing. So then fast forward, obviously, now, I mean, we don't have to go through the major details because nothing really major, I mean, it does, nothing like major, the same pattern, right? Mm -hmm. I'm using, now I'm not doing what I'm supposed to, now I haven't paid my stepdad rent, I'm getting put out, blah, 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 I don't know where to live. I go live with another lady who worked for me. I end up stealing her debit card to go get high. She puts me out, now I've got nowhere to go. End up going on a family trip, and my sister and her girlfriend or wife at that time drive me back to Ohio. They have, they drop at this house mm-hmm. that they think I'm staying at. In actuality, I'm not staying at it. I literally walk in the backyard and wait till they pull off. So here I am now. I have nowhere to go. And this is a small town in Ohio, right outside of Cincinnati in this small town. I have nowhere mm-hmm. to go. Literally was sleeping in the like town square on the ground. And finally get somebody like to pick me up, whatever. And, um, at this point, all I'm trying to do, so I get to the social service agency, right? Because at this point, my mom's not talking to me. My stepdad's not talking to me. My sister's not going to take my calls. I've already lied to them and told them that I'm, I have it together. Everything's fine, blah, blah, blah. So I won't say that they weren't taking my calls. They were under the impression I was good. I figure out that there's a social service agency in the this town called Lebanon. So I go there. They're willing to buy me a ticket because I'm homeless to come back to Chicago. Oh, okay. That's probably 2000 and. 12 or 13, okay? So, so we're into in the Chicago. Chicago. Now we're getting to the, the back end of before I go to recovery. And so we, I get here, again, nowhere to go. At this point, I'm at the peak of my addiction, mm-hmm. okay? So now I'm coming back. I'm wanting to shoot. I've been shooting. I'm going to continue to shoot. And I'm just, at this point, I'm a, my sister sends me this long Facebook message. I, there's days I wish I still had it mm-hmm. to serve in purpose of telling my story. Because she lays out everything. Everything that you just said to me, that they had done for me, she lays out. I said, I'm not taking your phone calls. And my mom's not taking my phone calls. So now it is just me in real life. Even though I went about all these years, I've gone about life like I didn't have a family. And that I didn't, you know, like it was me against the world. When in actuality, if I just got my shit together and I was willing to work through shit, I had a, a down... Fam, they wanted you to get it together. Someday. They wanted me to get, they get it were together.
1: So hopeful for you to get it together.
0: But the addict in me couldn't let yeah. me do it. Mm-hmm. Couldn't let me do it. Mm-hmm. So I get back here. I don't have anything. This is at the peak. So I run back into TJ. You know what I'm saying? And I'm out on the streets. And at this point, there is no more turning tricks. I just want to get high. I don't care if you're paying. I'm not looking for you to pay. I'm looking to get high. I meet these two guys. They're very attracted to me. But they were holding, and they were the seller, you know, and a dealer. So I would go over there and the anticipation, yeah, give me high and then we can mess around and da-da-da. And occasionally we would do some light foreplay, you know, hand jobs, that kind of time, that type of stuff. But nothing, you know, not real like intercourse or anything like that. I was there solely to get, get high. They start introducing me to all these people that are in the circles of holding weight. There's a guy up on, this old man up on Sheridan Road. Mm-hmm. And he and, you know, we go over there. And he's like, if you want to get high, you gotta do this, you gotta do X, Y, and Z. I'm like, I'm down to do whatever, you know. His thing is, this man had to be in his 60s, right? And he had a rubber-made tub, no exaggeration, right hand of God had a rubber-made tub this freaking deep, this freaking wide, full of crystal meth. So, of course, I'm gonna do whatever you want me to do. That's an unlimited white. supply. White, white man, of course. So he loads up a syringe. He wants me to perform oral sex on him while he's injecting because it gets him off. And then he'll give me a full gram of meth to do this. So what do I do? Do it. Duh. Of course I'm going to do it. And I did it multiple times. And at this point, I'm still youngish, you know. I, and I look even I don't even today I don't look 39, mm-hmm. you know. Um so I do it. And maybe I'm in there. And at this point, I'm putting a half a gram in a needle each time I'm slim. So you mean white guy, he wants
1: you for sexual reasons, but he get off on seeing the people he has sex with use
2: mm-hmm.
0: meth.
1: Mm-hmm. And he just has an unlimited supply of
0: it. Mm-hmm. Wow. And I put myself in my health and compromising positions at this point, you know. And I I'm on the streets. I don't have anything, you know, I'm back to riding the red line to sleep on sleeping at friend's house here and there, but I also need to be in a certain area. So I'm able to get high. And a lot of people that I ran with either stayed squatted or lived on the South side. I needed to be up here. I didn't have a job, didn't have money. You know what I'm saying? So I needed to be up here, which meant that I had to ride the red line and jump the rails, you know, jump the turnstiles and be on the train all night, eating out of trash cans, eating when I could, you know, here and there, stealing, doing all this. Thank God I never got caught. How is your physical appearance changing at this point? At this point, you know, I'm, you know, know I I thought that I was keeping it up because I'm still using the Broadway Youth Center. Yeah. And at this point, they've moved. It's new staff. I can lie about my age. The center on that had been developed. So we got that, you know, and that, you know, all those things. So then, but now I'm slamming and I'm slamming like a half a gram of meth. And for people that are you, that have used in the past, Mm -hmm. that are in sobriety, they know right now when I said that, that's a lot of dope to shoot. Yeah. That's a lot of dope to shoot. And I would shoot it and I'd get high and I'd be high for days. So So I made this, do you remember man's country? Yes. Okay. Do you remember how rancy and like scummy man country was? Yes. Because folks that went there, that's where you went to get high, right? So I meet this young boy online. He's got two grams of dope. He tells me he's got two grams of dope. Mm -hmm. I meet him up there. Back then, going during the day, it cost you like $5 to get in, right? So I went up there and he went went to smoke, but we were inside. And I'm like, oh, we just got to shoot. I turned this boy out on slamming, on shooting. And I shoot, he's like, oh, and it gets it, you know, now he's ready. He's no longer interested in me. He, you know, meth takes a, it's sexualized, right? And it -hmm. it, it makes you very sexual, and it makes the limits that you may have had before when it came to sexual things that you would do, go away. Now you'll do anything. And so he runs off and scurries through the, the bathhouse, whatever, leaves his wallet. I watch him where he puts the dough. What did I do? Thank you. Duh. Of course I took the dope. So I take the dope. I leave there. The shot that I had just taken is starting to settle in, and I took too much. Mm-hmm. So now it's got me stuck. So I'm stuck. I luckily get off the train down here. That was up on Argyle. I get down here, and I'm over there on Broadway by the CBS. Um I think it's like Broadway and Barry or something. And I'm stuck. And I see a cop car. Mind you, the cop car was just driving down the street. They weren't looking for me, but I'm Paranoid. Because I'm that high, because I shot too much dope. A man's country. I eat a gram and a half of meth when you see the police, mm-hmm. because I think they're coming for me. I think they're going to. I think they're going to arrest me, and I'm gonna get caught with this dope. So I eat the meth. Open up the bag, literally pour it in my mouth, and eat it. What happened? I woke up three days later at Illinois Masonic in the ER.
1: Wow, was that
0: rock bottom? No. Of course not.
1: What was rock bottom?
0: Actually, what? I told that on a story. I told that at a at an order. My sister hadn't messaged me yet. This mm-hmm. happened before my sister messaged me. Then my sister messaged me. So now I'm at an all time low, mm-hmm. right? And TJ's really the only person that really is dealing with me at this point, right? Never judged me a day in my life. Always been there for me.
2: Yeah.
0: Okay. So TJ, uh, I'm getting high. You know, I could tell stories on and on. I don't want to glorify it. We get the picture. At this point, I'm at a low. I get that message. I was at the public library because that's really all that I had. You know, I barely could keep a phone on and do those types of things. That's when Cricket at first came out. So I had a little Cricket phone. It would be on sometimes. It would be off sometimes. But I could always go to the public library, use Facebook, you know, email, that type of thing. And I got that message. And I'd been partying. And at that point, I wanted to die. So I was able to churn to brick and get, um, like, a gram and a half, two grams of dope, right? And you talked about the Belmont rocks, right? Mm-hmm. They weren't Belmont rocks anymore, but to us older people, there's yeah. that area is still Belmont Rocks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I go to Belmont Rocks and I load this syringe with every bit of the dope I had just bought. And I wanted two things to happen. I wanted one of two things to happen. I wanted to I have to either kill me or heal me. Mm-hmm. why I shoot all this dope and still live so so I shoot over two grams of dope and still, still live, live, sonny, because at this point my mom's not taking my phone calls. none of my family wants so when to do you, it when really you you
1: wanted to die like what's the mindset behind that Because at this point you're an addict. oh, I know you're at this point out. I'm a, mm-hmm. but you' you're, you're at this moment where you just don't want to live anymore, so what's I, simply when I think about somebody being an addict, they just want to keep getting high. They enjoy being high. So what would, what would you want to leave that life? Be like? I don't want to get high anymore. I want to die.
0: Yeah. What? I wanted to, uh, I didn't have anything. Like I wanted to be, I foster. wanted to have the family. Mm-hmm. I wanted to have the nice mm-hmm. things. I wanted to be successful. I wanted to be mm-hmm. rich. I wanted to have a good job. I wanted to have a boyfriend. I wanted to have a relationship. Mm-hmm. I wanted all those things. But I wasn't ever, I couldn't get out of the cycle. That's deep. And then I run into TJ and TJ's working at the Salvation Army at this time. And he's like, hey, you can come to my job. You know, they'll let you live there for free and they have a program. They might be able to get you some help, you know, like whatever. The addict minded in me is like, oh, this is going to be a place to live. And then I'll stay for a few days or a couple weeks and then I'll dip out because I can sign myself in and sign myself out. What's the difference? You know, it's not going to matter. And so I, on this uh, October 1st, 2014, mm-hmm. I get to the Salvation Army up on Clybourne Street, the Adult Rehabilitation Center, and I enter a program that would change my life. So you in
1: this program.
0: So I get to this program. Now, mind you, I show up. Um, the deadline for intakes was 2 p.m. Mm-hmm. And this shows God's will for me. Okay, the intake person comes out and goes. We're not. It was like two fifteen, two thirty. We're not supposed to do intakes after two, two p.m. Mm -hmm. Let me go ask my boss. Major Julie Aaron is the uh, Salvation Army officer that's over the program portion of it, and her husband runs the operation part of it. Yeah. She looks at me, looks at the intake person, and says, "Go ahead and do it." Had she not and told me I had to come back the next day. I may never have came back. That's divine intervention. So I get in this program. There's a lot of cool people, you know, like they're, they're all addicts. They're all people that have addictions, right? Now, mind you, obviously, I've, you know that I've tried to get sober a bunch of other times before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Never works, right? Philip Burgess is his name. He was a counselor in the program lead for the, the rehab program. And he's also a counselor. So he is leading a group and he was from the west side he used to do heroin he was in recovery so here now these things and he's telling these stories and like how he used to be and now he's running a program and he's Mm -hmm. sober with like by this point i think he had like 15 some years sober and this is 2014. it's a six-month program it's a hundred percent free okay all they do is they make you sign up for a link card so they can use your link card to buy food that feeds everybody. So mm-hmm. everybody in, in the program has signed up for a link card. You sign a, a waiver saying you agree that you're allowing them to use your link card for food purchases and all that stuff. And they feed you three meals a day. You have a bed. They give you clothes. They don't allow you to take anything in for bed bug reasons and all that. Right. Mm-hmm. And then they, uh, where does I going with that? Oh, so he's telling the story and I, Literally hadn't been there but a few days, and I walk up to him after the meeting, and I said, "I want you to be my counselor. Mm-hmm. Little did I know it was it was a bittersweet decision I was making there <laughs> It was a haste decision that I was making, and he becomes my counselor. Mm-hmm. So at first, I'm given the same kind of energy I gave any other counselor or therapist that I ever dealt with. It's just telling you basically what you need to know. And I openly tell him, you know like I'm gay, and you think Salvation Army it's church and religion based, mm-hmm. this could be tricky, you know. But it doesn't phase him. doesn't phase him at all. Actually, nothing that I tell him throughout the course of my time there ever fazes him. And he gets down to the core of saying, you can't get sober, Roy, because you're not willing to talk about the real stuff. You're talking about the surface level stuff that you think I want to hear, which is exactly what the fuck I was doing. So then we, he's like, I think, and he's starting to put the connection together that I have this obsessive trait with my mother because i watched her be abused for so long. Now, some of the parts that I leave out of there, and still to this day, I have to catch myself. And let me tell you, my mom is a gun card, carrying, pistol toting woman. <laughs> don't run up on her.
2: Okay. Okay. Because she will, pull, she will draw down on you. Okay.
0: Uh, and that's because of her, because of my stepdad. Mm-hmm. He don't play that either. But um, you can't raise your voice. I'm saying you get too excited in a room, and my mother's in that room. I go into full, and you've seen me in action at work. Yeah. yeah. So take that, multiply it by a thousand, and realize that you can't come. You know what I'm saying? But it's unhealthy. Mm-hmm. So then, a lot of the relationships that I had with both of my mom, my mom's second and third husband, mm-hmm. I didn't want. I didn't believe that there was anybody that walked this earth that loved my mother as much as I did. Mm-hmm. Her, my stepdad, is one hundred percent loves my mom as much as I do. Yes, and maybe more,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and that's okay. Um, but uh, it's uh, so Mr. Bird just links in on that, you know, and clicks in on that, and we start to do. He's like, I really think we should do over the phone therapy. Because at this time, my mom lived in another state. not like she could come. And when I very first called my mom when I got to rehab, she was not for it. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? She really didn't take my call. She didn't really do any of that. She um, didn't believe. Because at this point, I've done this before. Yeah. She doesn't believe that I'm going to get sober. And so it takes her about a month or so to come on board. And then he reaches out to her with me in the office and talks to her first. Mm-hmm. And I think hearing hearing, him talk made her realize, okay, this might be different. So we dump in, we drive into, and I'm talking about all the stuff that I told you about my childhood mm-hmm. that I was able to just tell you so matter-of-factly mm-hmm. in this in this setting right here. Yeah. It's because I have nine years sober and I've had to, I've had to repeatedly talk about it through therapy, but it helped. And I got to the point where I was able to say, it's okay. My mom's okay. Nobody's going to hurt my mom. And if Mm -hmm. anybody ever tried to, my stepdad, let me tell you, he's got a shotgun and a shovel and ain't nobody going to miss you. Mm -hmm. Cause he's not going to, he believes my mother walks on water. Yes. You know what I'm saying? And we don't always. We still don't see eye to eye.
1: It's so crazy
0: that you absorb
1: that pain of seeing your mother get abused by your dad for your whole journey. I don't think people quantify what childhood trauma do to you and how it shows up and how it shapes you into the person that you are, and like how you just connected that is like crazy.
0: So we start talking about the childhood trauma, the the, the domestic violence, the sexual abuse, the lying. You know, and Mr. Burgess was a no nonsense person and really would call me out on my bullshit. So, even so, he helped, and I ended up staying eight months. So, a six month program. Sure. I stayed for eight months because I there was about a month and a half period where I just stopped doing the journals Mm -hmm. and really stopped putting forth the effort because I kind of just got in a lull. And he brought me out of it. He kind of let me work myself out of it. Actually. You're not using it at this point. No, I'm in the program. I have not touched a mind-altering substance since October 1st, 2014. Wow. Even when I got my teeth redone and they pulled all of my bad teeth, I only took ibuprofen 600s. I did not take the painkillers that they offered me. So what
1: made you, because you in this program, you have this counselor that you're connecting with that he's really put in the work. What made you want to stay clean? Because this, like you've been using for so long. Now you're in this program. It's like you're kind of sticking with the program. Mm -hmm. You're adhering to the things that you have to do to heal. Like, what was that
0: motivation coming from? I've started to build a relationship with God. I started Mm -hmm. to pray. Talk about. I started to ask for forgiveness. And my mom was back in my life. But I was also, and I say this, therapy works. Yes. I was also able to unload and verbalize things that I had never verbalized before. You know, I was able to tell my mom that I vividly remembered the night that my dad drugged her up those stairs and ripped her clothes off and was going to rape her. Yes. And I want to say for the people, my dad and I are in a better place because I forgave him. Mm-hmm. I do talk to him um, on holidays and stuff like that. He's remarried and is going through his own stuff you know i have to tell my story truly and i can't leave this out because it's i my story but i've made peace with it i forgave him and i don't need anything from him to to make me okay or to keep me sober mm, that's me i don't i don't you know mr burgess taught me that god taught me that yeah and i tell people all the time forgiveness is a lot of more of the time than not for the person you're forgiving it's for you it's for yourself it's for for yourself and and i and so all of a sudden i no longer have a desire i don't have a desire and i haven't had a desire in these nine years
1: so you're unpacking all this trauma in this six month turn to eight month program you don't have a desire to use you get out of this program
0: And what is life looking like now? So the last phase of the program, you have to have a job before you can technically graduate from the program. And they let you stay after graduation for a while Mm -hmm. um, until you can get enough money to move into your own place. Right. But I'm ready to go at this point. You know what I'm saying? I found a job. I work for a Japanese barbecue restaurant downtown. I'm making a bunch of money and I'm working around liquor. And that was a true sign that it wasn't the desire really was gone. That there wasn't a desire to drink I anymore. have always been drinking wine, turning to alcohol, and then using. And this I didn't. Time, you didn't do it. the traumas, I've talked about it. I've ver- verbalized that the weight has been lifted off my shoulders. So now I am, so I call TJ, right? Tell TJ, I can move out. You know, can I come stay with you? I got a job. I'm making really good money. He lets me come stay with him. And I'm paying him like two fifty. Or whatever, and I'm really just sleeping on the couch. Sometimes, like in his daughter's room, or whatever. And then I've stayed on 78th and Bennett, right? I find this two-bedroom house over here on uh, 77th and Jeffrey. Okay. Now you know all the, uh, okay. all, the all the all the girls stay over okay. there, right? Yeah. So uh huh. <laughs> it's seven fifty a month. Mm-hmm. I'm making that in one week, right? So I move into this place. I'm working the job book. And um, I'm doing good. Before I know it, I got a year. Before I know it, I got two years. Now I've switched up jobs. Now I'm working in more of a bar setting. I'm working at the South Loop Club down on State and Balboa, across from that prep high school. Mm -hmm. And Jones Prep. prep. And then, um, you know, now I got three years. Now I got four years, you know. Um, And then I start working up north. I do a couple stints. I worked for Howard Brown for a while. I went back and worked for the Salvation Army and worked in the rehab program and was their uh, job readiness facilitator and helped the kids or helped the um, uh, beneficiaries, the people, the clients, as they were in the last phase of the program, helped them get resumes together and do all that. Uh, The pay was the work was great. When you get social services and non for profit, the pay's not really all that great when you're starting out entry level. What was motivating you?
1: Like you, over here, you're growing professionally, you're clean.
0: What was motivating you to stay on that track? Something Mr. Burgess said to all of us <clears throat> all the time, a question he asked us. He'd say, is your here better than you're there? And they tell you when you're in rehab and in the program, if you, if, um, when you get those urges, If you don't let the tape play out, so the tape that you just listed off, like it starts here and then that's the Mm -hmm. tape playing out, right? I let that tape play out nine years in. I still let that tape play out when I have bad days because I know how it is. Mm -hmm. Is my here better than my there? And 100% hands down, I left that program knowing that my here will always be better than my there. And I made a promise to myself. I would rather eat a bullet than ever use a substance again. Oh, my God. So I would rather die than ever relapse again. So you've been clean for nine years. We, we know you were
1: at a bar. Being around a party and saying, the club saying. To me, you know, knowing it's about you, I, I'm always thinking, like, how does he do it? Because this is insane. I could not be around things that would trigger me. Or remind me of my past life. So how did you like, cope and deal with so working I built, in a bar and being around the parties?
0: I built an accountability network. You know, like the TJs, uh, a good friend of mine, Fred. People like you, my coworkers. Every time I got a new job, every time I went somewhere, I always told people, I'm sober. Yeah. I always put my sobriety first. Mm-hmm. You know, and they know it. So because they know it, I built an accountability network. So now I do run, you know, I'm one of the managers of progress. I run the security team there and I've been there for four years. And, um, you know, that's a club that that's a turn up club. We're a high volume, busy nightclub. Mm -hmm. And I put so much pride into that. Progress is a twofold for me. It's a job, right? But it's the only POC bar on the strip up in Halstead. And since I've gotten sober, my need for social justice, my need to end racism, my need to prioritize black and brown folks in this world is as strong as my need is to stay sober. Right. So, progress has been a twofold for me. So, I still keep, so there are people in my life that if you didn't know me and you walked up and you tried to buy me a drink or say, oh, here, drink, you can't, you know, you need to be drinking, da 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 da, that would literally fight you, physically yeah. fight you. Mm-hmm. Because you did that. Yeah. Baby, I have a gay son. Let Mm -hmm. me tell you. I love him. You (laughs) and TJ, somebody was asking me the other day, and they have been around me a couple times when TJ's been around me. And they always go, oh, you still don't drink or you don't drink. And the other day they were around me and TJ goes, why does that person always ask you Mm -hmm. why you don't drink? And it bothers TJ. TJ gets so mad. My son would literally, I'd have to bond him out of jail. Yeah. Like he would, he would hurt somebody.
1: One thing that I feel like with your story that I realized that you had people that really loved you. Mm -hmm. From at your lowest to where you at now. I think that's a blessing that you really had people like TJ really is a ride or die. Because at your lowest, he was still there. And that's amazing. I think it gives hope to people that is battling addiction still. And probably want to get out of it. You said something earlier that Hit me like thunder. You had dreams. You had aspirations. You wanted to be rich. You wanted to be successful. The fact that that still lived in you. And I think we all have this light in us. And sometimes the shit we go through, like trauma, it dims that light lower and lower. Some kind of way that light got brighter and it just kept getting brighter and brighter. Even me knowing you on Facebook, when I met you in person, your aura and energy, I'm like, I might like him. We were standing outside of Progress. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, this fool. Mm-hmm. This is the person I see on my feed every day now. Uh, and I was like, okay, this is the Progress man. And the way that you just are with the community um, is, I know that it's authentic and natural. I don't like fake bitches. You know, I, I call it how I see it. I don't really so. mix and mingle with a lot of girls in the scene. But you, it was just something about you where it's just like, oh, I like him. And there's something real about him. Mm-hmm. And it's really everything you've been through.
0: So it, it does. And, you know, I've been places. And so I started to ask myself, why did I get a second chance at life? Why did God bring me mm-hmm. out of this when I should have been dead mm-hmm. a long time ago? Okay. Yeah. There's no reason outside of that I'm supposed to do what, I'm, what we're here doing tonight, what it starts tonight. Mm-hmm. So you said about my dreams uh, you know of being somebody of mm-hmm. being you know being successful. My success now the number one measure of my success is going to be being successful at building these platforms, this podcast, my TikTok, all of that. Mm-hmm. So my vision is to my vision is to um build these platforms and help these people Anyone. I don't care what it is. And over the course of this podcast, we're going to talk about all things. We're going to talk about sex work. We're going to talk about the adult film industry, the only fans. We're going to talk about mental health. We're going to talk about therapy. Because, yes, my story is big, but my story is just that. It's just yeah, mine. And I'm not better than anyone. I am no better than the addict that is still out there using. Okay. And there's somebody out there that's had it worse than me. There's somebody out there that didn't have any family at all. They didn't have a chance to ruin relationships that I took for granted and ruined. Okay. So now my mission is a threefold mission to share my story and help other addicts. It's also to get resources for anyone, not just the LGBTQ. Community, But anyone, the resources they need, whether it be housing, clothing, uh, mental health, substance use, um, HIV care, prep care, whatever it may be, that, so, you know, um, to be a voice in a fight because I'm a white presenting Latino. My mother's white. Yeah. I can't change that. Yeah. Okay. Does it bother me when people call me white? It does because of the things that are with, that come with, mm-hmm. with being white. Mm-hmm. So I get offended by that. Yeah. Um, but to use my privilege and be the biggest voice to end racism. And the third thing, and it's the least important to me out of this whole entire mission plan, is to be financially successful. Because yes. if you were to ask me what I still struggle with today, after long-term Matthews, paranoia is a thing. So I, I still deal with bouts of paranoia and depression because of what the substances did to my brain. Yeah. And there's really not a medication that'll fix that. It's being conscious, being aware and putting forth the effort to work towards it. Yeah. Um, and so I have to do that in my money management, you know, I am horrible with money, yeah. but I also will call me right now and say, your phone's going to get shut off tomorrow. It's $150. If it was the last hundred and fifty dollars I had, even though I had other responsibilities to take care of, I would still pay your phone bill because I would it's in both sides of life. Right? I and I have to get out of that. That's why my post that going into 2024, I'm only doing for the people that do equally for me. You know. I think that you owe it to
1: yourself. This is something that I used to struggle with but I think you've been through a lot. And I think people that have been through a lot they have this natural yarning to want to do for others. Um, But you have to put yourself first. You have to prioritize yourself first. Like you really have to get to a place where you're selfish with like, I need to come first and I need to learn how to say no. And I need to like create those boundaries. And it's it's the thing, I made a similar post. I'm like, I'm not helping nobody in 2024
0: financially. So, you know, I have my son. Mm -hmm. Okay. I have TJ. I have my best friend Gabriel and my best friend Fred and my best friend Chanel. Okay. Those people have unlimited access to me okay, and always will. I want, and you know, my son, I'm his gay mother, you know, and people look at me like this and go, can we get into the drag? We can briefly give me one second. Okay. We're gonna get into it one second, okay? <laughs> but um, to bring it, so I'm only giving those people the unlimited access to me, okay? Mm-hmm. Because I have unlimited access to them. Outside of that, can't. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? If you're not, if you can't do the things that I need you to do, and you're not supporting me, I started at Brave Space Alliance. In the um, in the very near future, I am resigning from Progress. Mm-hmm. That is a thing. Um, This is the first. It's you heard it here first. Oh my god! Um, And because it doesn't mix with the brand that I'm building, it doesn't mix with the platforms that I'm building. Um, And you know, so I'm going to focus on this podcast. I'm going to focus on the work that I'm doing at Brave Space and the outreach because I'm an outreach coordinator there um, with Brave Space Alliance here in Chicago, which is a non for profit um, on the south side. Is black and trans-led, which attracted me to it, and mm-hmm. the CEO I've worked with before and yeah. worked for before, and I love her down. Um, she'll actually be on the another episode coming up here um, in this season to talk about resources. Yeah. Outside of that, I'm looking for, I need another uh, gay child, and I yeah, I'm ready man. to be somebody else's mama, <laughs> and um, I am looking on building me platforms mm-hmm. and helping whoever I can, and-, and doing whatever that looks like, you know, over the course of all the years to come. Yeah. um, yeah. Um, Well, I just want to say this
1: is beautiful. This is amazing. I'm so proud of you. Thank you. Um, Just being able to talk about everything that you've been through in such an open way. I don't even know if I have that much courage to be, you know, that revealing of my life. I'm happy that you overcame your addiction because this is also where we don't have people that we can get these type of stories from that really telling us the dark and then it's being hope and light at the end. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited for this journey for you. Um, I'm always going to be here
0: for you. I appreciate that. and You have. You know, and you're the reason that this got your push. This is how... You no, know, this... I don't fuck with nobody. I'm not <laughs> even trying to be negative, but I don't live for girls. Yeah. Y'all
1: live for the girls. I don't live for the girls. <laughs> but I live for Roy. And I think Roy... Just hearing his story for the first time, I was like, oh my God, you have to, this is your
0: platform, like this is your calling. Yeah, so I'm super excited. Sonny, thank you so much for coming. We're going to get into, uh, real quick, just some um, uh, social media stuff, and then at the very end, this these two episodes, so it's going to be a part one and a part two, um, the season premiere is going to be um, on January 17th, 2024 and it'll be uploaded to all streaming uh, podcast streaming platforms as well as YouTube. So I'm going to list off some of our, um, the social media platforms that we have so you can go follow, keep updated, and all of that. It's very important. Um, I just ask people, like, share, um, comment. That type of stuff gets the algorithms on social media accounts to push your content out. So you can follow uh, Next Fix Podcast on TikTok at RoyChris12, 12, R-O-Y-C-H-R-I-S-12. 12. You can follow our Instagram account at NextFixPodcast, all together, all lowercase. You can follow our Twitter, or I should say X, formerly Twitter, account at NextFixPodcast, all together, all lowercase. And then, most importantly, our YouTube channel, which is NextFix12. And every week we will upload to all the streaming platforms. And then we will also be giving the video um, version of each episode on there. So be on the lookout for that. We are splitting this first episode because it is so long because I talk so much. (laughs) Uh, We are going to split it into part one and part two. I am going to release part one and part two together. um, But it had to be broke down time wise for um, that purpose. Outside of that, again, I'd like to thank uh, Sunny. And real quick, this week is also a little different. Normally, I would do the five-minute shout out in the middle of the episode to give us a break. But unfortunately, um, it didn't work like that. So this week, I'm going to do the five-minute shout out at the end. And it's going to go out to um, the five-minute shout out is going to be community-based small businesses um, that are Black-owned and operated. And this week, is a very close person to me, uh, Corey Robinson, he runs a custom denim design called Millennial Riches Denim. You can follow him on Instagram at Marley, M-A-R-L-E-Y, 365 underscore. You can also follow his um, clothing line and see all of his work at Millennial Colors. I'm sorry, Millennial Dot Colors. So M-I-L-L-E-N-N-I-A-L, period, C-L-O-U-R-Z. Please follow him, does great work. He does custom orders, not only in denim, but all custom designs. A very great person Um, and does really good work. I have a bunch of stuff that he's done. And yeah, so just, uh, you know, I want to give this free shout out to small businesses in support because... It's not about me winning. This isn't about me going viral. This isn't about me um, building something for myself to, you know, boost my ego. This is about seeing other people win and helping other people. So Next Fix Podcast is all about hope, strength, and purpose. So my goal is to give folks hope, show folks that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And in turn, that will build the strength that they need to discover and rediscover their purpose and be able to live their life at the fullest potential. I thank everybody for tuning in. Sonny, I thank you again so much. I thank my production team um, and they will definitely be in all the editing clips and everything um, as well. So please follow them as well. And we will be back actually in two weeks for with the next episode and that is going to be no capital t's in the community be on the lookout for that thanks everybody for tuning in we appreciate you sunny thank you thank you and that's a wrap